Good evening, friends. This is Don Weaver, co-producer of Valley Writers Read. Tonight, our regular host, Franz Weinschenk, is going to read a memoir of his own called 60 Years of Teaching. Although there's a little about when he started teaching at the high school level, it's mainly about the many years he spent both as a teacher and administrator at Fresno City College. Here now is Franz reading 60 Years of Teaching. Sixty years of teaching. I started teaching at Edison High School in Fresno in 1948. At that time, Edison was the across-the-tracks high school in town. Our student population was quite diverse, a mixture of African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Asian-Americans, including many Japanese youngsters who had just returned from three years in relocation camps, and also about a third white students, some of Italian parentage, some whose families had recently come from America's Dust Bowl, and some whom the kids called vulgar Dutch, who were the descendants of religious dissenters originally from Germany, many of them Mennonites, who were neither vulgar, but who had lived around the city of Odessa near the Volga River in Russia, nor were they Dutch, but Deutsch or German. I taught mainly English classes where we emphasized grammar, did a lot of diagramming. Remember diagramming? Where you underline the subject once, the predicate twice, and the direct object three times. We also did some reading and a fair amount of writing. I also organized a new class called Speech Arts at Edison, which turned out to be a combination of forensics, drama, and stagecraft. In collaboration with our wonderful choir director, Marion Bew, every year we put on Edison's traditional Christmas play called The Gloria, a fairly religious play that, because of its content, could probably not be put on today. And in three consecutive years, we staged three Gilbert and Sullivan operettas, The Pirates of Penzance, HMS Pinafore, and The Mikado. Our students and their parents loved Gilbert and Sullivan, not only for the great music, but also for those sarcastic little songs that poke fun at the rich and the powerful, like, how do you suppose this fella got to be the ruler of the Queen's Navy? Well, first of all, he never went to sea, and then, well, he polished up the handle of the front door so carefully that now he is the ruler of the Queen's Navy. Just a word about Marion Bew, who was not only a talented person, but a totally dedicated teacher. For each of the three years that we put on those shows, she spent just about all of her summer vacations coaching the lead singers who were going to be in the following year's production at her own home. What a fantastic job she did. Parents and school administrators should not forget how much students gain from extracurricular activities like choir, orchestra, drama, forensics, and sports 
because not only do students' performances improve, they learn to subordinate their fat little teenage egos to what the group is trying to accomplish. Unfortunately, over the years, I've lost track of Marion. So, wherever you are, Marion Bue, please know that your former students and colleagues remember those memorable operettas and all your hard work and dedication. You know, when you become a teacher, I guess you're supposed to turn into a big, wise, know-it-all mentor. But at 24 years of age, I think Edison taught me more than I taught it. It was at the end of my first year that one of my black students, a sophomore who had just turned 16, told me he was quitting school so he could pitch watermelons down in Kingsburg that is, to load them onto trucks right out of the field. You'll be a junior this fall, I told him. You should stay in school so that at least you'll have a high school diploma. I know you're smart enough. Man, he said, I just turned 16 and got me a good-paying job loading melons. If I stay in school for two more years and I get my diploma, the way things are around here in Fresno, I'll still only be pitching watermelons. So why waste my time? He talked to me in a friendly way because the two of us got along well. Nothing personal, he said, but a diploma from Edison High School just don't mean nothing to me. What that incident taught me is that if young people aren't somehow motivated to go to school, believing that somewhere along the line what's going on in their classes will help them later on in life, even if maybe only a little bit. The whole exercise of education is really a big, fat, babysitting drill. Much later on, I remember reading on the back of a student's T-shirt, you can lead me to school, but you can't make me think. On Mondays, I always put the spelling words for the week on the side blackboard for the test on Fridays. You know, 10th grade words like breakfast, summary, elite, cafeteria. And then on Fridays, before my first English class, I erased the board in anticipation of giving all my classes their spelling tests. When I gave the test, I would say the word, use it in a sentence, and repeat it. And then that's when they're supposed to write it correctly and legibly on a half sheet of composition paper. Only on this particular Friday, I forgot to race the board. It wasn't until I was about halfway through giving the test to my first class that I realized what I had done because a lot of students were looking over at the board in a very strange way. They could hardly contain themselves tittering and guffawing I acted like nothing had happened, but by the time I got through, I think just about everybody in class knew exactly what had happened. But still, I never let on until after I collected all the papers. Now, you would think that with all those words right there on that board in plain view, everybody would get them all right. But you know what? I had the last laugh because, if anything, that class did worse on that test than ever before. They were so thrilled to think that they had put one over on me that they really got careless copying from the blackboard. One morning, a student came late to class. Since he didn't have a pink slip, 
that was our name for a tardy slip, I sent him to the office to get one. And when he came back, he handed it to me. At the bottom of the slip, it said, Reason for tardiness. His answer, School took up before I got there. In 1949, Sir Lawrence Olivier came out with his memorable production of Shakespeare's Hamlet, in which he played the part of the melancholy Dane. The film didn't get out here to the West Coast until about a year later, at which time all of us high school English teachers in Fresno were bombarded with glitzy promotional material, urging us to get our students to go see the film. As an incentive, they announced that in a few weeks' time, there would be a special Saturday student matinee at the Tower Theater on Olive and Wishon Avenues, and we teachers could get all the free tickets we wanted for our students. Man, that set me off in a tizzy. For the next couple of weeks, I went on a feverish Shakespeare crusade to get as many of my students as possible interested in that play. I got us copies so we could thoroughly read and study the text. I explained all about revenge tragedies, Elizabethan English, iambic pentameter. I even brought a model of an Elizabethan theater to class so that we could pretend to be the director and plot every scene of the play right down to the trap door where the famous graveyard scene takes place. Daily, from eight to three, it was all about Hamlet and Ophelia, Polonius, Gertrude, and that awful king. But wasn't Hamlet supposed to be the greatest play ever written in the English language? I even had my students draw pictures of what they thought the leading characters looked like, and we posted the best ones around the room, along with some of the play's great lines. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night to day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. I must be cruel, only to be kind. To be or not to be, that is the question. Good night, sweet prince, and flights of angels sing thee to thy rest, on and on. Well, I was jumping for joy when seventy-five students signed up to go to that matinee, so I drove clear across town to get them all their tickets. But even though all that occurred about sixty years ago, I'm still stunned about what actually happened. Only two went. Where, oh, where did I ever go wrong? That's the nagging question I've been asking myself for all those years. After four years at Edison, with the Korean War raging, I was drafted into the Army. While I was overseas, I learned that my principal had become the president of what was then called Fresno Junior College. At the time, the college was a part of the Fresno Unified Schools District. I wrote him, and for some crazy reason, he hired me. So that when I was discharged in 1954, I started teaching speech, English, and journalism at Fresno Junior College and have been employed there ever since, both as an administrator and a full and part-time instructor. 
When I first went to work at the college, we were located in what was left of the old Fresno Technical High School on Blackstone and O Street, where Cesar Chavez Adult School is located today. All of the beautiful church-like superstructure of that high school had been destroyed in what has been dubbed as the Tehachapi Earthquake of 1952, and we taught in what was left of the building, the basement and first floor, along with some shops and eight bungalows. The campus was located very close to the Santa Fe Railroad tracks, and it wasn't unusual for occasional hobos to wander on to the campus. At various times, I had a number of them visit my bungalows, which always made for a lively teaching situation. One time, somebody saw a couple of them enter my bungalow and call the police. Before I knew it, four patrol cars zoomed across the lawn and surrounded my bungalow. At least six officers, weapons drawn, emerged. I came out with my hands up and I explained, and they whisked the hobos away. At this time, we had all of 450 students, 46 instructors, none of whom were minority members. From that very time, our school has started to grow, and I don't believe even with today's enrollment of almost 25,000 students, it's stopped yet. In my opinion, probably the biggest reason for this phenomenal growth is our philosophy, which is that just about anyone who's old enough and who's really serious about wanting to get a post-high school education can get it if she or he really tries. Our college is not only for those who took college prep in high school, but provides a chance for all those who sincerely want to strive to get an education in the areas of business, technical or industrial education, the health professions, law enforcement, or those who want to transfer to four-year institutions. That kind of open-door policy has really been the overriding commitment our school has made to our community. It's a policy that has caught on here in Fresno, in all of California, and probably all over the country. But let's not kid ourselves. To help many of our students to really succeed, we have to offer rigorous and diverse remedial programs. For my first four years, besides a mix of six classes of speech and English, I taught one journalism class whose job it was to put out Fresno Junior College's first yearbooks. I had a lot of great students in that class, but one of my favorites was Ralph Throneberry, who at the time was a young man who didn't seem interested in anything in life except photography. Well, since we didn't have a darkroom at the college, Ralph persuaded his mom to let us use their second bathroom to develop just about all of the photographs we used in our yearbooks. After graduating, Ralph became a staff photographer for the Fresno Bee and has remained there for many, many years. Starting in the late 1950s, it became evident that our downtown campus wasn't going to be big enough. So Fresno Unified bought what was then the Fresno State Campus, and they in turn settled in their campus in northern Fresno. 
The move to new campuses by both schools was incremental, and for many years both schools taught classes on two campuses. Many of us spent quite a bit of time driving back and forth to meet our classes, which were often scheduled for two campuses. As a matter of fact, both faculties often ate lunch together in our cafeteria, which at the time was located in what is now Fresno City College's bookstore. The first Fresno State building we occupied was what they call the Demonstration School, located right on University Avenue. That's the place where, ever since World War I, the university prepared primary school teachers by having their students actually teach grammar school kids. So I was given the daunting task of teaching a college class in a room with tiny desks designed for third, fourth, and fifth graders. Even the bathroom fixtures were just inches off the ground. In those days, they still used water tanks with chains for flushing. One time, I pulled the chain, and the whole thing crashed down on me. A year or so after we completed our move to our new home, the state of California insisted that we install a sprinkler system in case of fire. It's puzzling that they hadn't required the same safety measures for Fresno State students, but for us, well, we had to have a sprinkler system. So the day came, it happened to be a school day, when a number of workmen arrived on campus with about the noisiest electric drills on the planet and started carving out four-inch diameter cores through the massive concrete walls of the old administration building. This so that the sprinkler pipes could be properly mounted. By about nine o'clock, it became absolutely clear that because of the unbelievable racket these folks were making, no teaching could possibly proceed. So, a small group of us faculty members took matters into our own hands. One of our group, whose name I'm not at liberty to divulge, unfortunately he's not around anymore, climbed down into the cellar via the trapdoor in the mailroom, and knowing that the master switch to all the electricity in the building was located down there, bam, turned off everything. Ah, what blessed relief. The whole place went beautifully quiet, and we proceeded with our jobs, which, after all, was to teach students. However, there was one instructor who was notorious for always showing movies in his classes. I still remember him stumbling out of his room, all upset because, since the electricity was off, he wouldn't be able to show his films that day. Guess you'll have to really teach a class for a change, brother, we told him. In 1958, President White asked me to be our college's first debate coach a job in which I had the pleasure of working with hundreds of wonderful students who honored themselves and our school by becoming fine speakers and debaters. Being on a debate team gives students extensive experience in how to research a topic in order to be able to argue both sides effectively. It teaches them how to work cooperatively with a partner for the good of the team, how to prepare and present your case in a logical, persuasive way, and then, during the rebuttal period, 
how to listen carefully to your opponents, and how to think on your feet well enough to counter their argument in a civil and effective way. Quite a few of our team members won state and even national honors. Many have since become lawyers, executives, college professors, one even a U.S. congressman. For many years, during Christmas vacations, Fresno City College put on a comprehensive forensics tournament for both two- and four-year colleges and universities attracting some of the best schools on the West Coast. Without a doubt, the Fresno City College Christmas Tournament was known as one of the largest and most prestigious west of the Mississippi. For two and a half days, just about every room in the old administration building and in McLean Hall was filled with eager forensics competitors. Tournament headquarters was located in the faculty lounge where coaches and competitors could relax, fill up on coffee, and enjoy the wonderful cookies that, year after year, Ellen Bennett's home economics classes baked especially for us. Well, one Saturday afternoon, a little after lunch, one of the coaches came to see me. His debate team had made it into the finals, which was scheduled for later on that afternoon. Congratulations, I told him. But the problem was that just a few minutes earlier, one of the students on that very same winning team had accidentally dropped one of his contact lenses down the drain of a sink in the men's bathroom in the administration building. I got a hold of the janitor on duty, and he called the college's plumber at home, who dropped everything, drove over, removed the trap underneath the sink, and fished out the lost lens just in time for the debater to make the finals. This proves an old adage, good teachers learn to make friends with their janitors. While I was debate coach, we, of course, also participated in tournaments in other parts of the state. One time, probably around 1967, we entered a tournament at Modesto Junior College. As usual, what with a tournament starting early on Saturday morning, we traveled to Modesto on Friday evening and stopped just south of town to register in a motel where we planned on staying for the night. Everything was fine until the owner saw that we had two African-American students on our team. That put him into a rage, and he refused to allow us in. What is this, he roared, a bunch of damn freedom riders? Remember, this was not Georgia, Alabama, or South Carolina. This was Modesto, California. I mention this incident because it was just about this time, in the mid-60s, that two overriding and sometimes overwhelming issues faced America for at least a decade, civil rights and the Vietnam War, two critical problems which often overlapped and many times even compounded each other. These two issues became the basis of a great deal of controversy, civil strife, and disobedience, even some devastating riots. People often believe that what goes on in schools is totally isolated and insulated from what's happening in the community and in the country, but nothing could be further from the truth, especially during those years, because both issues materially affected schools. The first question was, were minority students going to be allowed entrance to American schools and colleges 
on an equal basis with whites. And the second question was, were 18-year-old males going to be drafted into a very unpopular war over their objections? The Vietnam War turned out to be the longest war in American history. It took the lives of 56,000 American servicemen. What brought the war onto college campuses was the draft. On our campus, if a male student had 12 units or more, he could continue to receive a deferment. But the minute he went below 12, he was subject to the draft. In those years, when you came home at night and watched the 6 o'clock news, you saw almost daily demonstrations, protests, marches, sit-ins and teach-ins, mostly about the war, but often also about civil rights. Frequently, you saw minority members being beaten with batons, dragged into paddy wagons, attacked by dogs, or hammered by water cannons. So much for the home front. Overseas, you saw American soldiers fighting in Vietnam. Helicopters transported the wounded and the dead out of the jungle. Some nights, the camera might focus on soldiers hauling their fallen comrades out of cavernous jets and lay their enshrouded bodies onto the tarmac. Other nights, the president might come on to tell us that he needed more troops for one more big push. One year, the national collegiate debate topic was whether or not America should continue fighting in Vietnam. That, of course, got our debate team right into the thick of things. In order to prepare the team to be able to argue both sides of the issue, which is what collegiate debaters are called upon to do, I asked two Fresno State professors, one for and one against the war, to come to our debate class on separate days and each to state his views. Nothing happened when the one who spoke against the war made his presentation. But at the next class session, when the pro-war professor commenced talking, one of my students started heckling and harassing him. I repeatedly asked this young man to stop, to remember that regardless of the man's views, he was our guest and needed to be shown courtesy and attention. But he wouldn't stop. At one point, he hollered, Well, if you think the war is so damn great, why don't you go over there and fight it? The professor turned livid and fired back that he had fought in both World War II and Korea just so that students like this one would be able to uh, have free speech. Well, when the students started in again, I had enough. To make a long story short, I kicked this young man out of class. In over 50 years of teaching at Fresno City College, this is the only time I've ever done that. As it turned out, by being dropped out of the debate class, the student now had only nine units and therefore became eligible for the draft. A couple of weeks later, I received a request to reinstate him, and I said I would but only if he wrote a sincere letter of apology to that professor, a letter that I wanted to see first. But he wasn't willing to do that. After a month, I was really surprised when this student came to see me in my office to tell me that he had joined the army, that his father and uncles had served, and that he didn't want to be thought of as a coward and now was willing to do his part, get it over with. That was in about October. 
By April of the following year, his memorial service was announced. Years later, I saw and I rubbed my fingers over his name inscribed in the black marble of our Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. In the fall of 1968, I became the first Associate Dean of Humanities at our college. This division included English, speech, music, drama, art, philosophy, foreign languages, and journalism, departments that some at least viewed as the home of all those troublemakers. Until the war more or less ended in 1975, Fresno City College did experience many demonstrations, rallies, parades, campings, protests, even bomb threats. I especially remember those because for a month or so, somebody would call the switchboard every morning to tell the operator that a bomb had been set to go off in such and such a building. The fire department searched for the first few days after that, we administrators became the bomb squad and had to do the searching. But while many of us went home at night with our heads spinning, what we faced and experienced at our college was really nothing compared to what was happening across town at the university, where many times its president felt it necessary to go around the campus with an armed bodyguard at his side where, accompanied by an armed police escort, the maintenance people physically nailed shut, sealed, and chained the English department, which was then taken over by the president of the university, where just about all the members of the ethnic studies faculty were sacked, where one afternoon about 150 students lay down in front of the university, daring motorists to run over them, where, for at least 25 years, the university was home to two quite different student newspapers. I've often wondered what the difference was between us and them, and my conclusion is that our faculty and administration always kept their doors open to all students. Somehow, Fresno City College never got into that us-against-them mentality. I shall always remember our president, probably half-exhausted at the time, sitting in his office or in a conference room somewhere, patiently writing down on one of those yellow legal pads what some students were telling him, even though he probably knew he couldn't do much about, but listen, listen he did, because listening does make a difference. Fresno City College never abandoned its open-door policy. For the most part, at least, the administration and faculty were always there to meet with students and, if nothing else, at least give them the satisfaction of getting their grievances off their chests. One morning, coffee cup in hand, I was just about ready to start putting together the schedule of classes for the next semester when the chairman of the English department marched in. An imposing figure, the minute we saw him, we could tell that he was very upset. In stentorian tones, he announced that at that very moment, there was a student in the faculty men's bathroom. In all of 25 years that he had taught at the college, he declared, his voice almost breaking, he had never seen a student in there before. 
Why? Because, as everybody knows, students are not allowed into the faculty bathroom. How could such a thing ever happen, he asked dramatically. He had asked the students, he told us, what in the world he thought he was doing in there, whereupon the student told him, in the most vulgar and inexcusably explicit terms, that he was performing a bodily function. Whereupon he, the English chairman, immediately notified campus security, which he declared would dispatch an officer to the scene post-haste. Well, since the bathroom in question was right near our office, we all walked over, and sure enough, there were two campus security officers already in the process of energetically interrogating the subject. Are you a student, they asked. Who wants to know, said the voice from inside the stall. We're from campus security. No answer. Well, yeah, well, what do you think you're doing in there? What do you think? Just like I told the other guy, I'm baking a cake. Don't you know this is a faculty bathroom? Does it make that much difference, he said? Once the stuff goes down, don't it all go to the same place? Or do they separate it, faculty stuff on one side and student stuff on the other? You know, you got a foul mouth, son, one of the officers told him. How'd you get in here in the first place? I just turned the knob on the door, same as you, sir. One of the security guards walked over to the door and tested the knob. His right, he mumbled in a low voice. This door wasn't locked, Dean. Aren't you supposed to lock it? I, too, checked the knob. You're right, I told him. It's probably broken or something. Well, we'll get maintenance to look at it. By this time, the student had emerged and was washing his hands. Obviously a Vietnam veteran with long hair braided into a queue in the back and a gold stud in one ear, he wore a black silk jacket with the outline of Vietnam on the back and the letters Da Nang embroidered in colorful yarn. One of the officers took down his name and address and told him he'd be getting a campus citation, to which the student replied, Glad to hear it, Sarge. I'll be sure to bring it with me the next time I come in here so as I can use it instead of toilet paper. Well, when the English department chair heard that, he literally exploded. This is a typical example of the lack of respect these students have for authority nowadays, he fumed. This student should be summarily dismissed for insubordination and defiance. He then turned to me, stopping just about inches from my face, and here you are, a dean. I could feel his hot breath mixed with a little spittle just inches from my face, a supposed administrator, and once again you do absolutely nothing in the face of gross insubordination. I just want you to know I'll be bringing this whole matter up to the faculty senate at their next meeting. That is your choice, Mr. Chairman, I told him. But with the whole country going up in smoke, I'm not about to go to pieces over a student who found his way into the faculty bathroom. And I headed back to the office. In the spring of 1970, at Kent State University in Ohio, an angry crowd of students was demonstrating against the Vietnam War. Some of these students started throwing rocks at a National Guard unit 
when the order to shoot was given. Six students were shot, four killed. The repercussions of this shooting were widespread and dramatic. At our school, a number of anonymous notes were sent to teachers and administrators demanding that we better cancel graduation or else. Our president convened a special meeting of the president's cabinet to discuss the matter. The first speaker was the chief of police of the city of Fresno. He was a tall, thin, quiet man who spoke in a determined monotone as he told us that when you face a danger like this, even if you think it may be remote, it's always prudent to take precautions. Bottom line, he counseled canceling graduation. Several administrators agreed. It would be an easy matter to simply mail out diplomas. It was at this point that I made my big speech. These threats are only from a few extremists. We're reacting just like they want us to, I told the cabinet, retreating into fear and disarray. When our students walk across that stage, it means something very, very special to them and their families. So I made a motion to go ahead with graduation as usual, and the cabinet voted. To make sure of the result, the president counted the votes two times. The motion passed. Graduation was on. On the night of the ceremonies backstage at the Saroyan Theater in downtown Fresno, everybody was on edge. Somebody saw a package that looked like a bomb sitting on a ladder. It turned out to be a stagehand's lunch. Shortly after the program started, and as the graduates started to file in, a man came running down one of the aisles. Immediately, some people figured he was a demonstrator bent on disrupting the proceedings. A few even thought he might immolate himself, because there had been some instances of that. Our Fresno City College police cadets in civilian clothes were on him like a blanket only to find out that he was a parent wanting to get good photo of his daughter coming down the aisle. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. After the singing of the Star-Spangled Banner, Alex Molnar, our beloved piano teacher, who's gone now, who was playing the organ on stage at the time, somehow pressed the wrong lever button or knob, and the loudest screaming siren you've ever heard came on. Everybody in the audience was dumbfounded, looking around in dismay, expecting the worst. You could just see them asking, Now what? Who ever heard of a siren on an organ anyway? Well, it took a few minutes for everybody to settle down and for the program to proceed. For me, the best part of graduation is the part where the grads actually get to walk across the stage to receive their diploma. I had lobbied to have somebody read the graduates' names with some sensitivity for the pronunciation of their names, especially the Spanish names. And even though we had asked the audience to hold their applause, just about every single graduate had some family or friends to cheer them on. Tonight was the payoff they had been working for so long. Biology majors, secretaries, 
dental hygienists, auto mechanics, paralegals, radio and TV repairmen, history majors, business majors, sociology majors, architects, engineers, inhalation therapists, nurses with their rows of mercy corsages, electricians, dental technicians, future teachers, welders, artists, musicians, hey, even a couple of English majors. The last ones up there were our handicapped graduates. They put them at the end of the line because they couldn't get up the steps and walk as fast as the others. As they rolled their wheelchairs and walkers across the stage, the audience responded with swelling applause. The very last one turned out to be a severely handicapped young man, all of about four and a half feet high, who had half again his weight in metal prostheses on both legs and arms with a broad stainless steel collar that seemed to hold his head to his body. With a winning smile, it took him a long, long time to clink and clank, only a couple of inches at a time toward the dais. The audience, on its feet by now, cheered him on relentlessly, and when he finally got his diploma, he held it up in the air. There was a moment of silence. Damn, he said, I actually made it. Our president, Dr. Clyde McCulley, dressed as he was in his colorful academic gown, came around the podium, shook his hand, and to our great surprise, gave him a big hug, and the hall went bananas. Folks, those are just some of the many fond memories I have of working all those years at Fresno City College. What's still just so mind-boggling is that when I first started at that college, we had all of 450 students and now have around 25,000. You have to admit that for any institution to achieve that kind of growth, somebody, somewhere, must have done something right. So join me in saluting all the students, faculty, administration, and board of trustees of Fresno City College as it celebrates its first 100 years. Let's hope the college's second 100 will prove to be just as successful. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read program, just go online at kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, our writer-reader will be Deb Borofka. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read. <laughs>